And if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to be in chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And this is what the Word of God says, Mark chapter 7, verses, verse 1 and following. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come to Jer from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God. When you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. In verse 14, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciple asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside can, cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things, come from within and defile a person. Praise be to God for the reading of His word. You may all sit down. As we continue our series in the Gospel according to Mark, today we find ourselves in chapter 7, as we have read this passage, the heart of the matter. As you are fully aware, legalism, moralism, externalism, they, they live among us. And at times they trouble our hearts. Even these things lure and enslave us, and they frequently shape our perception of ourselves, and even the perception of others. I would like to say to you that I am free of these things, as I just mentioned, but I'm, but I'm not. Nor do I think that you are free from legalism, or externalism, or moralism. We find ourselves in what really is a pivotal message or passage in, in the book of Mark. If you remember in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 10, Mark begins his gospel with the words, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And over the last six chapters, Mark has been unpacking for us who this Jesus is. And that is that he is the authoritative yet suffering Son of God. The religious leaders don't understand, the, the crowd of people don't understand, the disciples of Jesus don't understand, even, remember, even Jesus' own family don't understand. They don't understand who Jesus is. 
We've seen Jesus heal many people of all kinds of diseases and demonic oppression. We've seen Jesus forgive sins. We've seen Jesus challenge the religious leaders on the issues of fasting and Sabbath. We have seen Jesus calm not one, but two storms. We have seen Jesus raise a dead girl back to life. We have seen Jesus feed at least 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And we have seen Jesus walk on water. So Mark is showing us that these are things that only and only God can do. So what Jesus is going to teach us here in our passage this afternoon is something about our heart. Not the soft thing that pumps blood through our body. This is where we can easily locate inside of this. That's not what Christ is talking about. But the center of what drives everything we do. See, Jesus is going to show us that we all have a heart problem. And that the reason for all the sin and all the problems and all the dysfunctions in the world is because of a heart. It is something that you and I need to be aware and fully is this, when we have difficulties and troubles in life, and here that we, that we see it's about a heart issue. I'm sure we can all agree that the world is broken. Whether you are Christian or non-Christians, you can agree, we can agree that things just are not right in this world today. But the world is not at all as it should be. But our culture, but what our culture tells us is that problem with the world is due to someone else or to something else. And that's important for us to see and analyze because at times we're so quick to blame others instead of blaming our own heart or even our own selves. So what the world is telling us that what problem you're having, the issue that you're having, it's not you. It's not your fault. We're told that the reason we have issues is not due to our own faults, but because of someone else's fault. And Jesus is going to teach us something contrary to, to this. He's going to teach us that the problem with the world is not out there. It's not someone else or something else that is the problem. Our problem is not external. The problem is in us. The problem is our heart. You see, at times when, when, when we deal with problems or issues in our lives, when, when we have challenges and, and difficulties with our, with our spouse, with our children, we tend to think and, and, and have issues with the people instead of looking at our own hearts. Right? When you're driving, right? And you complain and you nag and why is this person slow? And yet the person in front of you don't know what's going on in your own heart. But yeah, you're so quick to be impatient. Right? And so quick to look at that person and have no idea what's going on in your own life. You're blaming that person. Why does that person drive so slow? Why is my wife, why is my husband, why are my children are this and that? Why is my church this? Why is my pastor this and that? We, we tend to complain and instead of looking at our own heart, our own selves, we look at others, we find faults on others. And so this evening we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the problem of the heart. And the second thing is the, the solution of Jesus with the problem that we have. So by looking at verse 1, the Pharisees come together to Jesus along with some of the scribes from, from Jerusalem. Jesus is apparently causing such a commotion as we go back to verse 1. And that commotion is going on that the most powerful people are being summoned, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're the people that are really good with, with the Old Testament scripture. They, they, they can look at it left and right and even provide interpretation. that give you meaning of that because they spend so much time writing it, copying it, so they're able to preserve, preserve the Old Testament writings. So these people are very knowledgeable as far as 
the Old Testament writings. And so when, when, when they have all assembled, they notice that some of Jesus' disciples are eating with what? Unclean or unwashed hands. Now just to clarify, that's not unwashed, as in the disciples never washed their hands. That's not what it is. It's not like they were disgusting. They were sanitary. They were clean. They knew to wash their hands before they ate. Right, so it was fine for them. In, you know, in in some Filipino culture, in some other culture, they, they eat with their hands. They would, some would wash their hands first, right, and, and then they go ahead and start eating with their hands. But here, the disciples are fully aware that's what they were doing. But yet, the, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the and the scribes, have different understanding. They have different rules and regulations altogether as far as what is the proper way to eat. So what the Pharisees are disturbed about is that the disciples did not ceremonially wash their hands before eating. The wording in the original language is kind of tricky here, but apparently there was a way to wash your hands that the disciples did not follow. That was their problem. That was the problem that they were presenting to Jesus Christ. That look, why your disciples were not washing their hands the way they're supposed to? So Mark is saying here, Mark really shows us and conveniently elaborates for us what this means. If you look in verse 3, Mark says, For the Pharisees... In all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. So Mark is saying that the religious leaders had developed a system of hand washing that was deemed as proper. And if you were Jewish, this was just something that you did and that you're familiar with. But notice that Mark does not say that the system of, of, of hand washing was directly or rooted from what? From scripture. But rather rooted in the tradition of the elders. Alright, so that's important for us to see as we move forward here. It's important for us to see in what these religious leaders were trying to put this burden on the people. And that is because there is nowhere in scripture that God requires his people to ritually wash their hands before they ate. Okay? Mind you, nowhere in the scripture that God demanded that when you eat, this is how you're supposed to do things before you eat. Nowhere in scripture. So we read in several places in the Old Testament that the priests were required to wash themselves before entering the tabernacle. In Leviticus 15.11, we read that anyone who touched a bodily discharge was to wash their hands. But there's nothing about God's people needing to ritually or properly wash their hands before eating. Okay? Again, everything was done here by the elders. It was simply tradition. And the religious leaders had put tradition on the same level as Scripture. I want you to be mindful of that. That at times you, you have you, you tend to build this kind of tradition, and then and here's a scripture. Like you know what? Let's align it and, and let's make it. This is a tradition of man. Let, let, perhaps it would be around this level, and that's what Mark is addressing here. And and, and the scribes are a key reason for this. The scribes were the ones who again who interpret the scriptures. What they would do is they would look at the law of God given to Moses. They would interpret what the law was saying. And the scribes after them would form opinions on those, on those interpretations. And so as they look at the scripture, as they study it, it's like what I'm doing now. And just kind of relying on what I'm saying. And like, you know what? This is what I'm doing. This is what a preacher is doing. is enabling you to, to understand what the word of God is saying. Right? And so this Jewish leader, the scribes, these Pharisees, they were called to do that. That was their task. And after years of all these opinions and interpretation, they put them all together. And they made laws for the Jewish people to, to observe. 
This was the tradition of the elders. In verse 4, Mark notes that they had become so strict in the tradition that they would wash themselves after coming back from the marketplace in case they came in contact with a Samaritan or bump into a Gentile or touch something that defiled a person that had touched. You see what's happening here, that they, they had been become so caught up in, the, in this kind of laws and the ceremonial washing that they even had specific laws for washing pots and pans and cups. It's all fine and good to have conviction about certain things, but if those convictions, listen, but if those convictions are not rooted in Scripture, then it's just subjective rule following. And that gets tiresome real quick when you just simply follow all these rules and regulation because it does not even goes along with the Scripture. And in verse 5, the religious leaders have enough, had enough with Jesus' blatant disregard for their loss. So they say to Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Listen. Listen to that question. I mean, it should blow our minds that they had have the audacity to confront God in the flesh about what is right and what is proper for Him to do. What we are seeing here from the Pharisees and the scribes is that they think God's words on the matter of washing is incomplete. And so they, they add and they add and they add to God's word, essentially creating a God after their own image. You see that this is not enough. What the Word of God is saying, it, it, there's more to that. And so they start adding more and adding more stuff into it and, and, and making it more of a tradition rather than what the, actually what the Word of God is saying. And so they add again, and it, it, it's as mind-blowing in how they're able to do this. And what is truly heartbreaking is that they, they think that they know better than God about what God is after. And, and they totally miss it at this point. So you see, God was not after their external behavior. He was after their heart. It's like, in, it's like King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, if you remember in 1 Samuel 15. God tells Saul to destroy all of the Amalekites and all of their animals. Okay, everything. Everything of the Amalekites was to be destroyed. Okay? And so Saul goes up against them, but instead of destroying everything, he spares the best of the livestock in order to sacrifice them to the Lord. Okay, so just mind you what King Saul was doing. And, and here again we see them in what he's trying to do was to, he was just simply to follow. And we think that he's doing a good thing. You see, he could be thinking, you know what, God likes sacrifices. God would appreciate what Saul had done. But when the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and Samuel hears the bleeding of the sheep and, and the lowing of the cattle, he says, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And, Samuel, and Saul says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have devoted the Malachites to destruction, but the people took all the spoil to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And Samuel makes a striking statement in 1 Samuel 15 verse 22. Listen, he says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. It sounds like exactly what we're seeing here with the religious leaders. And Jesus wastes no time in, in, in responding to them. You see, legalism, moralism, externalism is always connected to a condemning spirit. 
Is that spirit in you? Are you at, more, at moments more vigilant in your consideration of the behavior of others than you are in the condition of your own heart? Are you quick to judge and condemn others instead of condemning and looking at your own heart? You walk so righteously, you walk so religiously, and you're so easy to condemn your brother or sisters, oh, he or she is not following, but yet you're not looking how messed up your life is, how sinful you are, and yet you're so blinded of that. Again, the question is, are you more vigilant in your consideration of the behavior of others than you are the condition of your own heart? Parents, could it be that you have actually begun to think that you are not more like your children than you actually are? Do you say things to them like, well, in my day I would have never thought of doing such a thing. I, I can't believe you would do such a thing. Why can't you? We're so quick to condemn our children for what they were doing. You know what? It, it, back in my day, when I was your age, I wouldn't do such a thing what you just did. That's not me. That's not who I was. That's not how my parents raised me. But yet, there are other sins in our life that we're not quick to look at our own selves, and we're so quick to condemn others. We're all sinners too. Wives, are you watching the behavior, the words, the actions, and reactions of your husband more convicted for him than you are convicted for yourself? Are you more irritated by his sin, his weakness, and failure than you are broken by your own sin? Husbands, I would say the same to you as well, and for myself. Do you walk around comparing yourself to others in the body of Christ and assessing that you are doing quite well? Do you live with a profound understanding that every day of your life is a deep and abiding conviction that you have no other hope than the, the Lord Jesus Christ shed blood? You see, this, these Pharisees, these scribes, these guys are blind to the magnitude of their own danger while criticizing the, the disciples. We too could be in a, in a dangerous zone when we're so quick to provide all this, all this tradition and all these ways and that, that we think that are helpful. We may be knowledgeable in our understanding of the scripture. Those are good. It is good for us to study and to be faithful in, in knowing the word of God. And, and yet, the moment we, we, we condemn others for their sinfulness, for their behavior, because it does not align with our conviction, it does not align with, with our ways of living. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful. We need to stop and, and really understand and what this is all about. Verse 6 says that he said to them, listen, and you'll see this in Isaiah 29, 13. In verse 6, Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines and commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the, to the tradition of men. You see, look how quick Jesus Christ can call them hypocrites. Know this church that only Christ, only Christ can call them hypocrites. Why? Because God is perfect. He is perfect. None of us can call each other, right? We're not perfect. We're not sinless like Christ. He can call us hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is, right? And how the word originated, like in a drama, in someone who's wearing a mask, pretending to be someone else. Right? I'm not talking about that you're wearing a, 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 mask, a face mask right now, right? That's not the kind of mask I'm talking about, right? When, you, when you're acting and pretending and you know, like, you know what? And, and you have this mask, but you, someone else, you act someone else, right? It, it's kind of like 
here, we know each other as brothers and sisters. But the moment we go home, the moment we go to work, the moment we go to school, we all act differently, true or not. We really have to assess and understand where we are. And at times we, we, we could come and just like what CJ was saying here earlier in, in, in how he was exhorting the praise team during, during their um, uh, devotional time. In James chapter 3, he reminds us and he reminded us in about what our role and about how, how we speak. The moment we leave our church, we, we, may, we may encourage and build up one another here. And the moment we leave the church and go home, or even on the way home, what do we say about our, our brothers and our sisters we just talked about? Do we bring them down? Do we discourage them the way we talk about them? James chapter 3. And so here we go back. And Jesus said, look. Look what I said. These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's powerful. How much of our church life is wrapped up in saying the right words and doing the right things? How often do we sing the words of the songs without fully realizing what we're singing? Right? We, we sang, what was the song that we just sang earlier? Right? And do you even know what you're singing? Do you know the words that you're singing? For the praise team, do you actually know what words are you singing before you come here and help us to come and worship the Lord together? And for those who are listening and, li and singing together, when we are singing the words, we are we're actually moved to, in repentance in what we're singing. How much of what we do is wrapped up in lip service rather than true worship? In John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, her, But the hour is coming, it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What God is after are true worshipers, not hypocrites. The Pharisees and the scribes missed this. They thought that God wanted clean hands. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts, right? We've we, we seen that. Do we know? I mean, do we lift our hands? When, when we're actually singing, when the Bible tells us when we lift our hands, we're actually worshiping a God who knows our hearts. We, we may look good. We may raise our hands here. We may sing so loud, powerfully, with, with, with lip service, but our heart does not go along with, with the song that we're singing. It, it does not move the heart of God. Because of the way we are living our lives outside of this church. So you know what? The, the Pharisees and, and the, the scribes, Again, they, they thought that God wanted clean hands, but what He really wanted was their heart. It, it's what God has always been after. He's not after your church attendance. You may be here once, once a month, twice a month, three times a month, four times a month, five, six, every, you have not missed every Sunday of this year. He, God is not after your church attendance. He is not after your seminary degree. He's not after your Bible reading. He's not after your solitude. He's not after your quiet time. He's not after your tithes. He's not after your, your offering. He's not after your service. It doesn't matter how well you serve in that way, but yet without your heart in it. It doesn't matter how much you give, but your heart is not in it. We may talk about tithes and giving over and over, but yet your heart is so far away from the Lord and you're not even trusting Him. He's not after your good behavior. It doesn't matter how well you behave in this church and yet you behave differently at work, at home, in the school. He's not after your biblical counseling certificates. What God is after, church, He's after our heart. He's after your heart. 
He, he wants you to know him and love him and desire him above all else. And, and so when, when you attend church, when, you ha when you're actively involved in the local church, when you're in the Bible study, when you're reading your Bible, when you're praying, when you have this solitude, when you're doing this, you're doing it all for him. You want to commune, when you, 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 wanna, you desire him with all things. Not because you want to show off to people, but because you want to be in His presence, just in Psalm 27 verse 4, in what David says. There's one thing I desire. There's nothing bad about with your attendance, about your giving, about your tithes and offering, all those. But it's bad when you're not doing it from the heart. One commentator writes, It must not content us to take our bodies to church. If we leave our hearts at home, the eye of man may, deceive, may detect no flaw in our service. Our minister may look at us with approbation. Our neighbors may think us parents of what a Christian ought to be. Our voice may be heard foremost in the praise and prayer. But... It is all worse than nothing in God's sight if our hearts are what? Are far away. You may be here, but your heart is not in it. Do you hear me? You may read your Bible, but you know what? Your heart is not in it. You may be, you may be communing with the Lord and doing all this, but yet your heart is far away from the Lord. And you're doing this out of, out of religious works and tradition. But instead of having a personal relationship with God... You see, church, one thing that you and I are familiar with, we are not what? We're not perfect. Well, I know I'm not perfect. I don't know about you. We will never be able to come to God with clean hands. But God is not after our perfection. What God is after, church, He is after our heart. Legalism. Externalism, moralism always focuses on outward actions while ignoring the heart. And it is a sad state when you're so knowledgeable, when you're so equipped with the Word of God, and yet you're the one, you're the first one to condemn others because they lack understanding of the Bible. And it's a sad state of a brother or a sister who can... Who can quote Bible verses? Who attend all these conferences, all these things, and read many books, and yet to live of obedience to Christ? It means nothing. Those are all simply works, simply legalism and externalism. Listen, true Christianity is always a religion of the heart. God will not be satisfied with words. He will not be satisfied with behavior. He will not be satisfied with knowledge. God will not be satisfied with public acts of religion. God wants your heart. In order to understand this, you have to understand the theology of the heart that's given in Scripture. We've talked about this as we walk through the gospel according to Mark. That the heart is the center of your personhood. The heart being the seeds of your thoughts and your desires and your emotions and your motivations and your values. Your, the heart is your control center. The heart is the steering wheel of your life. And that would mean that what rules your heart will rule life and your behavior. What owns your heart owns the essence of what is you. See, church, God is after your heart. Because if He does not have your heart, He does not have you. Right? When you look at your, if you're married today, and you look at your relationship with your husband and wife, as, as, as a spouse, when you look at that, you look at your relationship with your children, with people, Right? And, and so see, what we see here is that God does not have your heart. He, he doesn't have you. Because God is after your heart. If He doesn't have your heart, He doesn't have you. And so it is not enough to jump through behavioral hoops when really your heart is being ruled by 
other gods. It doesn't matter what behavior that you tend to do that you think it look good, but yet your heart is not in it. That's why you have those shocking words in Isaiah 1. When Jesus says, I, I hate your solemn assemblies, I hate your sacrifices, they're an abomination to me. Why? Because they were not an expression of the heart. The heart is a worship center. You're always worshiping. You don't just worship on Sunday. You worship your way through every moment of every day of your life. Daily, we're worshiping. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, we're reminded in how we are to worship. The question is, what rules you? What do you want? What, what do you crave? Is Jesus Christ your Lord in those domains, in those areas of your life? Husbands, again, do you respond to your wife not based on who she is and what she does, but based on the willing submission to the command of the Lord Jesus Christ? You want to honor your Lord in the way that you treat the woman that God has given you. Parents, do you see yourself as God's agent in the life of your children? And what, and what you long for more than anything else is not that your children would be what you want them to be, but what you long for is that you would honor God in the way you respond to those children. So that you represent Him with beauty and with accuracy so that they would be drawn to love their Lord. See, faith to be true faith is a matter of the heart. Obedience to be true obedience is a matter of the heart. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, moves the fences of the law, not just behavior, but moves them into the heart. And he would say in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, adultery is not just a physical act of adultery, but adultery is a matter of what? Of the heart. Before you can act, if you're married, before you can act physically, you responded with your heart. You did it first with your heart. Just because you didn't touch that woman, that does not mean you did not commit adultery. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's a matter of the heart. If you look on the woman to lust after her, you've already committed what? Adultery. So Jesus Christ really goes hard on people because it's a heart issue. The problems that you and I are struggling with is not a physical, it's not external, it is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. The problem with the religious leaders is that they left their hearts at home. Jesus tells them that they, that they mistake tradition as commandments and as a result they neglect the Word of God. You see, when you neglect the Word of God, you're prone to commit any type of sin. So they, they miss what God is after. And Jesus goes right back to the Ten Commandments to point this out. In Exodus chapter 20, Verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother, but then we see what happens to the one who disobeys this commandment. Exodus 21 verse 17 says, Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. See, we are to honor our parents, respect our parents, love our parents, support our parents. Amen, parents? Doesn't matter how old you are. I mean, children, I'm sorry. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter you have, you, are, you have your own family. You're, as long as your parents are alive, you have a responsibility. You and I have responsibility to honor our parents, respect them and love them and support them. But here is what Jesus is saying they would do. right? They would tell their parents that they could not help them. If their parents were in need because the money that could be used to buy food for them, well, it was already devoted to God. That's what these people were saying. 
They would have loved to have helped their parents, but unfortunately, you can't give to someone else what has already been given to God. So that was their excuse, right? They were not able to provide or care and protect and be there for their parents because, you know what? You, I, I, sorry, mom or dad, I can't, I can't help you right now because I've already given it to the Lord. But here's a catch. The only problem was they did not actually give it to God. They simply devoted these things to God, pledged them to God, but they still held onto them and did what, whatever they wanted with that. But yet, they're so quick to tell others and how they should live their lives with this and follow, and yet they were not doing whatever they were saying. So they're coming across as devout. But they're actually hard-hearted. They're, they're disobeying the law of God for the sake of their silly, ungodly traditions. And Jesus calls them out on it. The Pharisees and the scribes had missed what God had commanded. They had placed tradition above the commandments of God. They made their traditions commandments that were to be obeyed. And Jesus is going to say that the heart of the problem is, is the problem of the what? Of the heart. You see, church, everyone has this problem with the heart. The very thing God is after is the very thing that leads us away from Him. It's the very thing that makes idols out of traditions. In chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Jesus gathers the crowd of people together and He says to them, There's nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him, but the things that come out of the person are what? Are what defiles Him. And then He goes inside the house, but what's Jesus saying? That He's saying that our wickedness is not a result of anything external. Our sin... Our problems, our dysfunctions, they're not a result of bad company or bad examples or particular temptations or the snares of the devil. Our wickedness is a result of a wicked heart. We don't blame. Listen, just because you keep continually committing the same sin, because you were doing it when you were, when you were younger, in when you were in your youth, or even younger before that, and you still find yourself committing the same sin, and yet you say, you know what, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a devout follower of Christ, but I don't know why I'm still going through this sexual sin in my life, or this particular sin in my life. But I'm doing all these things. I'm trying to walk right with God. I, 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 I'm doing, I'm serving in the church. I have a title in all these things. You look at all these things. See, it's not about the example of the past. And this is one thing that I was reminded. I had a, a sin of um, anger. So I have a sin of anger in my early years of my marriage. I still do not, not as bad as I was. Uh, so I scream here and then, but not as bad as I was. But I remember, in one of my counseling, I was told, right? you, don't, you don't act this way because of your parents. See, I was so quick to blame my mom and, and her family because I was raised in that environment. I can't. You see, as a follower of Christ, if you're, if you're struggling with past sins in your life and tend to blame others and blame your, uh, your behavior with other people around you, whatever happened in the past, if you're in Christ, that does not make sense. You must acknowledge that it's a heart issue. You don't blame them. Well, my dad... I'm a, I'm a drunkard today because my dad was a drunkard. I saw how my dad was an alcoholic, and so you know what? I am like this because of my dad. Does that make sense? I enjoy pornography because I saw my dad or my teacher and whoever was doing this, and so I, I, I'm good with that, and I, I've been doing it since then, and I'm like this because of them. 
I, I scream, I, I get easily angry because of them. Instead of recognizing that whatever sin that you and I can pinpoint is a heart issue. It's not because of external. Again, our wickedness is a result of, of a wicked heart. All you need to do is observe a bunch of toddlers in a room to discover that it is true. Right? I mean, you, you bring up four or five toddlers and you give them a toy and then one person would like it. Just imagine CJ and Daniela and another CJ girl and Kaylin. If they were younger, at, at, at one or two, uh, uh, two or three, and you give them toys when they were younger, you could just imagine. And, and, and CJ tend to like the, the other gift. And she snatch it away from Daniela. You know, you don't need to teach that. That's their behavior. That's the way they're going to act. That's the wickedness in their heart. The children cannot blame, or CJ cannot blame um, Kaylin while she was doing this. So I took it away from Daniela. See, Kaylin did not teach um, CJ to behave in such a way, to take that toy away from Daniela. It was her own doing. Unless Kaylin whispered to her, hey, take that. But at that age, they're not going to do that. They're just going to run to that person and grab whatever he or she likes. See, they're doing because of the wickedness in their heart. They, they, they wanted everything else. And so unless our heart is changed, unless our heart is transformed, we, we carry within us a heart that is ready for any sin. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Okay? Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, fullness, all these evil things come from where? From within. And, def and they defile a person. All of us, Whatever status in life, whether rich or poor, or old or young, men or women, all of us have by nature such a heart as Jesus here describes. Right? So stop looking at your, your spouse, stop looking at your people behind you, in front of you. You know what? Hey, pastor, I'm pointing that person, and because why this person has this sin that Jesus described. But you know what? Listen, all of us, all of us have this sin nature. And this is what makes the gospel so glorious. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says that the blood of Christ cleanses from all of sin. That's the answer to our sin nature. Right? You're committing sin. If you come to Christ in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, 8, and 9 tells us here, right? The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are before the grace of God entered our lives. What matters is the sufficiency of Christ to change our sinful hearts to clean our hearts. After the prophet Nathan confronts King David on his adultery with Bathsheba, King David writes in Psalm 51 verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But if you continue to the rest of the, of the chapter in Psalm 51, if you go down and, and, and look at what David says in verse 15 and following. Psalm 51, if you're there. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What did we see that? Where did we see that passage? Right? In Isaiah. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not what? Despise. See, if I'm thinking that I'll be right with God if I, if I only 
walk from the beginning, from the door, all the way to this altar. And that God, that I will be right with God. No. If that is a sacrifice, right? I, I, I recall as a young man when, when I saw my dad carrying a cross on his back, dragging that cross on his back at a young age during Easter week. And I asked my dad at that time, I said, why will you do such a thing? Right? He, I, I, apparently he was doing it almost every year. Right? And then the next day, he goes back to his drinking lifestyle. And go back to being an alcoholic. I said, Dad, what was the change? Was there any change? What was the whole point? You think that by you doing that, by making that kind of sacrifice, that God would forgive you? No. And what we see here in just what David, David could have done this. And you know what? But you know what? He knows, the, he knows what's happening here. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Look at the testimony of David. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart of God. That's what God is after. He's not after our service. It is a matter how often we serve God and whatnot and all these things. But what God is after is our heart. You want to be right with God? It's a heart issue. You need to surrender that. So David understands that he needs external help to deal with his internal problem. This is not something that will be solved by looking into himself. The only way David's problem and your problem and my problem with the heart is solved by looking to Christ. That's our good news. That's our great news, church. Whatever problem, whatever issues, that you're dealing with, whatever sin that you're dealing with, the only solution, the only problem is by looking to whom? To Christ. We have been forgiven. We have been forgiven. The only solution to the problem of the heart is Jesus Christ. So when you think about your problem, whatever external thing that you've been trying to do to make it right, it doesn't matter how many books you can be to read about and, and go to conferences and in all those things those will not help you whatever podcast you're listening to those will not help you unless you turn to Christ unless you run to Christ and the Bible tells us to come to him boldly and courageously and there we will find mercy in a time of need you will notice that Jesus does not give them Seven ways to become a better person. He doesn't give them a list of things to do. It's because he is on the way to being the solution for them. Jesus would eventually go to the cross. And he would die to pay the penalty for sin. And, and, and three days later he would be raised from the dead in victory over sin and death. And so that our hearts could be made new. See, church, our hope is only found in Jesus Christ and what He has done in the cross. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, God says to His people, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and, you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice who is doing the action throughout stage of what process of this process. And only God is doing the process and working throughout this. You see, God makes your heart clean. We cannot change our heart. Right? When, when, when you want someone... When you're trying to think of how this person, why this person hasn't changed all this time. It doesn't matter how well and how much you come along to that person. Only God can change the person's heart. Only God can change your heart and my heart. So you pray for your brother. 
and you pray for your sister in Christ. You pray for your child, you pray for your spouse. That God would change his or her heart. Amen? It doesn't matter how much we convince them to be different, to live a life like you. <coughs> and that's a mistake that we tend to do. We want them to live a life that's like us. We're imperfect. We're not perfect at all. We want them to we want to point them. We want to point ourselves. We want to keep looking to Christ, who is the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. So only God can change our heart. And He provided a way for your heart through the death and resurrection of His perfect Son to be renewed. In closing, our problem is an internal problem. And so acts of external behavior do not solve the problem. Right? If I have a problem of lust, right? If I cover my eye, does that help me? Does that remove the problem of my heart? If I pluck out my eye because I'm tired of lusting after women, does that help my problem? No. Why? It's a heart issue. I may not be looking at pornography physically or reading pornography or whatnot. Or if I might not be angry all, at this time all, all of a sudden or whatnot, right? But I may not be showing it that I'm angry, but in my heart, I'm killing you. I'm murdering you. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue, whatever sin that you and I are struggling with. If your problem was just behavior, then the law could provide rescue. But your problem is not behavior. Your problem is your very nature. Your problem is the essence of who you are. And you are the problem. Jesus came to rescue you from you. To rescue me from me, to deliver us from us. My problem is not first murder. My problem is a first, a murderous heart that allows me to hate other human beings. Beings made in the image of God. I wish I was free of that hatred, but I'm not. My problem is not first physical. It's not sexual immorality, but an immoral, lustful heart that wants things that are outside of God's will for me that craves the pleasure of sexual immorality more than I crave the honor of my Lord. You see, if you and I get a hold of this, you are broken by what's inside of you. You are broken, you are so broken by what's inside of you that you are humble and gracious and loving to other broken people. When you, when you and I truly understand that, it, that we have a heart issue, and then when we start looking at other people, when we start assessing our brothers and our sisters, we're not so quick to condemn them that we will not have a condemning spirit. Rather, that we'll be humble and be prayerful and to come alongside and be sensitive to their needs. Because the fact of the matter is that I have no argument to make before God, but Christ, because my heart is not yet cleared of all these things. You should, look in this, you should look in this mirror and you should say, I'm not yet free. My Lord and my Savior, continue your work. Free me by your grace from these things. I long for a heart that is ruled by you and you alone. May that be our prayer. If you have never repented of your sin, if you have never asked God to, to transform or to change your heart, to, to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, I encourage you to do that today. Because until you do, you will be different. You'll be no different from the Pharisees and the scribes who believe that some kind of external action will fix their problem, and it never will. Unless until you repent of your sin and acknowledge Christ, acknowledge and trust Christ to change you, that's when transformation happens. 
the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, but the solution is found in Jesus. So since the problem is internal, there is no external solution. We are all unclean. And the only way to be made clean and right before a holy God is by trusting in Christ's righteousness. Let me give you two things. You see, in legalism, we think better of ourselves than Jesus does. But in salvation, we think of ourselves as Jesus does, hopeless, helpless sinners in desperate need of a Savior. See, when I'm thinking, and something I posted way back in September 30, in my social media, I posted, I loathe a legalist heart. And so as I was looking at my own heart, as I'm walking and praying and recognizing and where I was, that I need a Savior, that I need Christ to change me. So I'm, as I was walking and praying and thinking of my own legalist heart, and so I said to myself, I loathe, I hate a legalist heart. And then, I, and then I came to this passage in Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's where I need to be. Instead of me condemning my brother and my sisters where they are in their walk with God, I need to look at my own heart and recognize that I'm simply a sinner. Oh, that God have, have mercy on me. The more you see your own flaws, the more you see sins, the more precious, electrifying and amazing God's grace appears to you. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. When the Lord examines your heart, what does He see? A self-righteous legalist trusting in what I do, or a humble sinner trusting only in what Jesus has done? The difference is of eternal significance. Again, church, as I close... When the Lord examines, assess your heart, what does He see? We may act all righteous, we may all act so humble in, in every way, but our heart is far away from the Lord. We may have all this lip service, but yet our heart is far from the Lord. And so again, in light of this passage, we need to ask ourselves this very difficult question. What does God see in our heart? What does God see in our heart? Does He count the number of services that we do? The work that we do for the church? The giving that we do? All those things when you start analyzing and examining your own heart. Is it based on that? Is it based on the finished work of Christ? Father, we thank You. We thank you, dear Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, that our sins are forgiven indeed, that we stand righteous before a holy God because of Christ, not because of our goodness in any way. We are not, we are so far away from that. We are born sinners. We don't seek after you. We seek after our own selves, our own idols. But Lord, we are thankful that you provided a way for us to be, to be right with you, to restore us in a fellowship with you. So we thank you for the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's role to convict us of our sins, to change us, to transform us, so that we will not be walking in a sinful way. Oh God, I pray that our hearts are, are near you, that we are that we're walking faithfully before you. God, when we think about what Isaiah said in, in, in Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 29, and when we think about Jeremiah and all these things, Lord, when we examine our hearts, 
you know our hearts. Our spouse may not know our hearts, our children may not know our hearts. But they, see, but they see us from the outside and we all act so righteously. We act so morally. But yet our heart is far away from you. We may have all this lip service, but our heart is far away from you. We may know all this, feel, may, may, perhaps our minds are full of knowledge of the word and yet our hearts are far away from you. So Father, work in our hearts. Work in each every one of us. And Lord, change us. Only you can change us. And we reminded Lord of the song, The Heart of Worship. We may know all these lyrics, but Lord, we're not living it out. We may be convicted with how powerful the lyrics is, or even your very word, and yet, we are simply hearers and not doers. And so Lord, we ask for a new heart. A changed heart that only you can give. So we thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. No matter the things that we want to do in life and to be changed, it is not our behavior that will change us. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. May we acknowledge and trust Him, Lord, to change us. Lord, I pray for our young people today. And Lord, they may grow up here in the church. They may understand and have heard all these things. But yet, Lord, they have not been changed by You. I pray, Father, that You would transform them. May You save them from their own selves. May they truly walk with You acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior. May they repent of their sins. Likewise, Father, for those, for the adults here, we pray, Father, that they too would acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, that just because they've been coming to this church and they've heard the message, but yet have not fully trusted you and surrendered their life, I pray, Father, that they would do that today because today is the day of salvation. God, I pray for the work of your Spirit to change them. May you speak to them, dear Lord. May they recognize their own heart. That not all this religious work, all this tradition that they're they aware of, none of those can, can save them. What only can save them is to, to acknowledge Christ, to surrender their lives to Christ. May you do that, Father. And we thank you.